Well, it's been an honor and a privilege to be with you these three weeks, and um, grateful for um, just the time to get to know you, and and hopefully have you get to know me. And let me let me share this with you. I know that there are um, you're going through time of transition, which really was part of what led me to think through this series to to bring to you. Um, but just know this, that your Colorado Baptist General Convention staff is here for you. I know that Nate Templin, your regional director, is here. I know you have a relationship with Bill Lighty. He's here. Rick Ackerman, Frank Cornelius all have spoken uh, to you during this time of transition. And just know that while this may be the last of this three weeks that I'll be with you, uh, it doesn't mean the last time that I, I can be here. right? So, so hopefully you, you hear my heart that the Colorado Baptist General Convention is here with a desire to help you, to see you move through this, to, to be with the Duke family and to pray for them and, and see them through their struggles as well. We're all in this together because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know, it's been said sometimes of the Christian community uh, that we shoot our wounded. Let that not be said of us. Amen? Let that not be said of us. Let's continue to pray continue to, to strive for relationship and see what God can do through us um, to accomplish His purposes. So I want you to take your Bibles this morning and I want you to turn to Esther. Esther chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 this morning as we begin. And, and much like the other two messages that I brought to you, there's so much background here that I'm going to relay some of that to you just in narrative format. But let me encourage you, 10 short chapters of Esther. Go home this afternoon, read through the book. It's an easy read. It's a narrative format. tells the story of God's moving and directing uh, in through this situation that He might rescue His people. And, and it is a tremendous, tremendous account. So Esther chapter 4, and this morning I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 17. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out in the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. The Nestor's maidens and her eunuch came to her and told her that the queen, when they told her, the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. The Nestor summoned Hatak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hatak went out from Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave a copy of the text to, and, uh, of the edict <clears throat> which he had issued from Susa for their uh, destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and plead with him for her people. 
Hatak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who has not been summoned, he has but one law, and that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter, so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these thirty days. They relate Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law, which is, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come to this time looking at this text, we thank you, Lord, for, first of all, knowing that you are with us through everything that we we encounter. But Lord, we thank you as we'll look and unpack this story of Esther and her, and her courage. That, Father, what we see is that you, ri- you raise up people at specific times when the need is great to be your instruments for your glory to bring about hope and help. Father, I pray this morning that you will encourage all of us in this place that we might be people of action. That we might be people who look at the needs that are around us, the great needs of those who are suffering or who are going through difficulty, or even remember that in our times of suffering and difficulty, that Father, You are there, and there is no question about that. Lord, I pray that You will use this again to encourage us, to embolden us that we might go forward for You to speak a word, to offer a kindness, to, to even... Uh, intercede on the behalf of those who need your help. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We ask your blessings upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Life takes unexpected turns. That's been kind of the theme that we've walked through for these three weeks now. It's that there are times in our lives when those unexpected uh, turns come because of things that other people have done. There are times in our life when those turns come because of things that we've done and we regret and we wish we could take back. But my my motivation in all of these messages has been this, that in the midst of those turns, there is hope. In the midst of those turns, God is present. In fact, there is one unmistakable and unchangeable truth that Scripture speaks to us about for His people, is that God is always with us. 
You remember the taunts last week when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and he spoke of the other gods, of the gods of Baal and, and of, the, of the Asherah pole? And he said to them, he said, cry out louder because maybe he's gone aside. And we said that in the Hebrew, that that's a euphemistic term, that he's in the bathroom or that he's on vacation or that he's sleeping. But our God never does any of those things. He is awake. He is aware. He is with us in all of our difficulties. So that's my, my encouragement, is that we would have confidence in any turn, in any difficulty, in any striving that we go through, because we know that God is always with us. This morning we turn our attention to look at the, at the account of Esther. This is the, the last of the Old Testament characters that we're going to look at. And she was a young Jewish girl at the beginning of the, the book of Esther that finds herself uh, attaining the throne queen position in, uh, in Assyria. Her husband, uh, King Ahasuerus, is the king of Syria who makes his home in Susa. The uh, commentators give us the, the understanding that his kingdom was vast. It went from, um, from Assyria all the way over into India, what is known as India today. It is, a, it is a kind of, if you will, rags to riches story. And so we might ask ourselves, how does, how does a rags to riches story fit into a series that's called When Life Doesn't Turn Out the Way You Planned? It's because in this text, what we see is that God is taking an ordinary person who had risen to an extraordinary position but had not yet become an extraordinary person. What does it take for an ordinary person to become extraordinary? You know, it often takes a tragedy to see a person go from an ordinary person to an extraordinary person. In fact, we could even say it this way, what, what defines or what, what reveals heroism, the heroic character in a person, is that there is a need. Right? How many times have we heard stories about firemen or first responders running into a burning building or into a crash or whatever, laying their own concerns aside without that need, that wouldn't be revealed, would it? And many times those tragic things that we go through or that others go through are there to reveal that God wants to do something amazing with ordinary people. Kings and queens, they're ordinary people. Just like you and me. Ordinary people. But know this, for those who step forward in, in extraordinary times or in times of need, there, there comes a cost. I want you to remember back in August. Now, as much as I'd like to think that you, you remember everything that I said when I was here a couple of months ago in August, I preached from the text of the Good Samaritan. Remember that? Anybody, make me feel good. You remember that? All right. There was a need that was evidenced in the text. And in that need, there was two of the religious leaders that were held in, in high prestige by the people a priest and a Levite that came down the road. And if you remember or familiar with the story, 
The need was there. The man was there. He was bleeding. He was naked. He was unconscious. And those two individuals could have moved from being ordinary people to extraordinary activity if they'd have just taken the opportunity to do that. But they didn't. They walked right past the man in need, assuming, and, and we're going to assume, that their perspective was that's somebody else's job. But they left the man to die. They did nothing. There was no activity on their part. But then the parable doesn't stop there, does it? Because the Samaritan comes along and sees the very same need, and he does something about it. And know this, it's not that that was without cause. The text says he was a man on a journey, which means he had an agenda. He had a purpose for the, where he was traveling and why he was going there. But it says that the, he stopped and he put this man on his own beast. He bandaged up his wounds. He took him to an inn. He paid for the man to be taken care of and even told the innkeeper, when I return, if there's anything more that you've spent, I'll cover that cost too. The Samaritan went from being an ordinary person to an extraordinary person because he stopped and met a need. Our text puts, us, puts Esther in that very same situation. There was a great need, one that, that threatened not only her safety, but complete annihilation of all of her people, the Jews. And the question that we ask going into this text is, what will she do? Will she be an ordinary person that walks right past the opportunity or will she be extraordinary? So the text, the, the book begins by telling us that she, Esther, was raised by her cousin Mordecai and she, she entered into the king's presence with all of the maidens of the land as he's looking for a new queen and she's selected. The capital of which hid the empire is in Susa, but Mordecai canceled Esther, whatever you do, do not reveal your nationality even to the king. And so she keeps the fact that she's a Jew hidden from her husband. After she became queen, Mordecai overhears a plot of assassination on the king and Mordecai reveals that and the would-be assassins are hung on the gallows. Now, these gallows are not ordinary gallows. They were 75 feet tall and these men were impaled on the gallows. In many ways, in antiquity, that was supposed to be preventative maintenance. Anybody who has any thoughts of harming the king all they have to do is look up in the sky and see this is what happened. And so Mordecai is honored. We're told in the text then that a man whose name was Haman comes on the scene and Haman is promoted to second in all of the land. And, and he was an arrogant man and a prideful man and he loved having people honor him and bow down to him. And as he would make his way through the square and the people would bow down to him, Everybody would bow down except for one man, Mordecai. And in that, then Haman had a growing hatred, not just for Mordecai, but for all of Mordecai's people. And so Haman then presents a, 
an unjust case against the Jews to King Ahasuerus. And he offers to the king to, to put forth an edict that would rid the, the kingdom of all of these people who are nuisances, who are enemies of the king. In fact, Haman even offers 10,000 talents of his own money to the king's treasury if the king will move and do this. Now, now just so you know, I mean, we hear these numbers in biblical terms and it's just sometimes it just kind of rolls off of us. A denarius was a day's wages for a laborer. A talent was the equivalent of 20 years' wages for a laborer. 10,000 talents is 200 years. uh, I'm sorry, 200,000 years. It is money that we can't even conceive. It has at least nine zeros behind it. (laughs) It's an incredible amount of money. And it is that that the decree is offered that on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year, the decree said that everyone in the kingdom was to rise up and attack and annihilate the Jews that lived in their community, and then they could take the Jews' properties and possessions as plunder for themselves. And so Mordecai hears word of this, And he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and he sits in the ashes because he's in mourning. This is where our text picks up in chapter 4 where we started reading that Mordecai, in the beginning of chapter 4, Mordecai is in sackcloth, he is in ashes, and he's mourning at the king's gate. And this conversation goes on. In this setting is the opportunity for Esther to be to be active, to be a person who will respond to God's position that she's she's been put in and to do that which will, will bring about hope for her people. And here's the questions. Would she step forward and make a difference? The question is, would she be an instrument of hope? Or would she see this as a risk that was too great to take for herself and back away? I want you to take some time this morning and unpack three things I want us to look at about the risk and reward of becoming extraordinary. The risk and reward. And again, let me say this. The risk is real, but so is the reward. And we're going to weigh those things out together as we look at this text. If you have your bulletins, you'll see that there's an outline in there. The, the overhead here on the, on the PowerPoint will reveal the answers. So let's look at the first point. We're going to start in verse 9. It is, there is always risk with obedience. Always risk with obedience. Look with me again, starting verses 9 through 12. Hatak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the peoples of the king's provinces Know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, the inner room, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. 
and they related Esther's words to Mordecai. Herein lies the danger for Esther. The king's law was clear, the text tells us, that no one could come into the king's presence unless called, and she had not been there for 30 days. Verse 11 tells us that. For 30 days. Now we don't know why she hadn't been brought in or called into the king's presence. She would have been the throne queen, even though he would have had many other wives and many other concubines. Maybe it's possible that she had fallen out of favor with the king, and he had not called her for 30 days. Maybe that there is a time that he's been overwhelmed with other things that have happened. But regardless of the reason, she had not been called and now is faced with a situation where she's being asked to do what could risk her very life. The danger is very real. To stand against what is normal or to act in a way that goes against the flow is a very dangerous thing. Amen? It's a very dangerous thing to do that. There are those people whose desi who desire to change situations that they find themselves in, but all they ask is, what can I do? You see, you see in order for change to, be, to become real, in order for change to be realized, we can't just ask the questions, what can I do? There has to be activity that follows. Nothing changes without activity. Nothing changes. And yet, responding in obedience, there is always risk. So we live in this, in this paradigm of, if I do, I risk. If I don't do, the cost could even be greater. Not that this is a, a perfect example of that, but my first church that I pastored was in rural Missouri. I just had graduated from seminary, was called, I was, I was just 30 years old and, and wanted to set the world on fire. And I thought that everybody was just excited about life like I was. Excited about doing things different, excited about reaching the community. When, when our children uh, were in school, our second daughter was in fourth grade in the middle school. Now this is a community, some of you may have grown up in a community like this, it was one elementary school, one middle school, one high school in the community, about 5,000 people. And in that community, there wasn't a lot of transition that took place. Everybody was related to everybody else. In fact, I had, well, I had a leader about my second week said, Pastor, be careful that you don't talk about anybody to someone you don't know. Now, I thought that's strange. You shouldn't be talking about other people anyway, whether you know them or not. But then his words were, because they're all related to one another. So our daughter, our second daughter in the fourth grade, her class was tasked with helping the kindergarten class put on their Christmas program. And it was going to be held to high school. So we decided we're going to go, we're going to support our daughter. One fourth grade class, one kindergarten class. Okay, We show up at the high school and there is the parking lot is full the overflow parking on the streets in the neighborhoods for blocks around, full. And my first thought was, well, what's happened is they've got a high school basketball game going on at the same time they've got this going on. That's the reason everybody's here. No, <laughs> nope. that was not the case. Everybody in town came to see one kindergarten class put on their Christmas program. And all of a sudden, the Lord is like, 
this light shining from heaven, the Lord said, if you'll reach the children, you can connect with the families. So we started an Awana program. Now we were doing RAs and GAs on Wednesday nights, about 9 to 12 boys and girls showing up on Wednesday night. We started an Awana program, and by the end of that first year, we saw 130 children every Wednesday night. I had a, I had a mom call me in the spring that said, can you talk to my son? He doesn't want to go to baseball practice. He wants to come to Awana. I said, well, what do you want me to tell him? <laughs> this is what we want. We want to reach people. We want to connect with them. And, and we were so excited that we saw that many people. And then at the end of the Awana season, and any of you, you know that, it runs during the school year from the fall into the, the spring. And at the end of the spring, I had a deacon's meeting. And I was, I was so excited that all of this had happened. And the 16 deacons that I had, mind you, I was 30, and the deacon closest to me was 55, who let me know this is not a good thing. How is that not a good thing? You're wearing out the building. This church was 130 years old, and the building had become an idol. You're wearing out the carpet. Things are broken. I had a woman stop me on Sunday morning as I'm getting ready to go up into the, the, the pulpit. We preached, had two services on Sunday morning. I'm getting ready to go and preach, and she stops me to, uh, to let me know that there's no toilet paper in the women's bathroom. I said, ma'am, this may surprise you. I spend zero time in the women's bathroom. But the kids had worn, you know, they did all that. And, and for the next four years, there were threats that my job was going to be terminated if we continued to see these kinds of things. Here's what I want you to know. The risk was great to continue to do that, but it was too great not to. That's the picture that we see here in this text. We will all face dangers if we're willing to be obedient to place God before us, to put God's will before us. There may be those that face a loss of a job. There may be those that face financial costs to do that. There have been people in this world, Christians that have followed God's will, who have lost their freedom, and others who have lost their lives. But Paul refers to these things in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as momentary and light afflictions compared to the glory that is waiting for us in heaven. The world is not our home, folks. We are just passing through. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Aren't those great words? And remember this, it's never wrong to do the right thing, regardless of the cost. Let's look at the second point in the text. It is missing the opportunity to do something great. Verses 13 and 14, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not, do not imagine that you are in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? 
whether you've not attained royalty for such a time as this. Missing the opportunity to do something great. Mordecai's words to Esther were profound. God intended, his intended purpose was to use Esther in this moment. But hear this. God's plans were not going to come to a screeching halt if Esther determined she wasn't the one. In fact, Mordecai's words were, who knows, but deliverance and relief will come and arise for the Jews from another place. You see, God's care and deliverance of His people does not depend upon us, but He invites us to come and be a part and receive the blessing of being His instrument for His glory. I can't think of anything more discouraging than realizing that we had a moment to be God's instrument in a great need, and we walked away from them, and God just said, okay, I'm going to raise somebody else up to do that. I think we have examples of that in Scripture with the, the Hebrews that left Egypt, that wandered for 40 years because they were unwilling to enter the land, because the giants were there. They were too big. They're too mighty for us. Even though God said through um, Caleb and through Joshua, you can take the land. You can take the land. The rest of them decide, no, we're not going to go in. The Lord said, okay. Well, you're going in at some point. It just won't be you. I'm going to take my people into the promised land. He simply works through those who are willing to trust Him. And here's a word for God's people. God is still going to touch the lives and the needs of those that He loves. And Scripture tells us that He loves the world. He's still going to make a difference for those that are oppressed. He's still going to uplift those that are hurting. And He's still offering reconciliation to the world because that's a part of His plan. And there may be those who say, well, that's too great a risk for me to be a part of that. Or that costs too much. Or I don't have time. Or how about this, if we were honest sometimes, and say, I just don't want to. To which the Lord will respond, okay, all right, I'm going to do it anyway. You just don't get to be a part. That was, that was the, the word of Mordecai to Esther. Consider that God wants to use you in this, but he'll do his thing anyway. God laid the opportunity before her. Would she say yes or would she turn that over to someone else. You know, there's a, a passage of Scripture, a parable that you may be aware of. And I'm sorry, I'm running a little bit long here, but there's a, a parable you may be aware of out of Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. One servant gets five, one gets two, one gets one. Matthew 25, verses uh, 14 through 30. In verse um, 15, the text tells us that each one received the talent based on his own ability. Right? So nobody got something that was over their skis, that they weren't able to handle. And we use, we use this term all the time. You know, all of us will one day see the Lord, and what we want to hear, what I remember from my earliest time as a new believer, hearing that Christians want to hear from the Lord is, well done, good and faithful servant. But do you realize that that statement, that longing to hear, well done, is based on activity. 
the first two who did something, one did something with the five, one did something with the two, they did something with what was entrusted to them. They heard those words. The one who heard, remove that servant from my presence, was the one who did nothing. And I think that's the challenge for us. Let's look at the final teaching on the risk and reward of becoming extraordinary. And it is this, that great blessing comes to those who trust. Great blessing comes to those who trust. 15 through 17, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink three days, night or day. I and my maidens will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. I don't know if there are more compelling words in, in all of this book than those. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded. These verses mark a radical perspective change for Esther. Before this point, she'd been saying, yes, but, yes, but. But here, she's saying, okay, I'll do it. And if, and if I perish, I perish. She had been an ordinary person who rose to an extraordinary position, but had not yet become extraordinary until this moment. This moment. Now she begins to realize, it begins to set in, why she is where she is. Why she's here in this moment. And rather than running from that purpose, she embraced it. And this is where her belief became faith. But we don't, we don't think about it so much this way. Faith is a verb, that's an action word, right? Faith is a verb. And, and it is belief com, uh, complemented with action, that equals faith. You can't just say, I believe in something. That's not exercising faith. Faith is when we put those beliefs into action. And if I perish, I perish. Folks, it's when we're willing to trust in the Lord and we're willing to trust Him with the results that we begin to move into that place of experiencing God's blessings. Sometimes we measure what we do by the results that took place out of it. But that's not where blessing flows from. Blessing flows from the yes, not how it turns out. Does that make sense? I mean, think about other examples that you've seen in Scripture. Daniel, in the moment when he was, he was uh, confronted with the fact that it was illegal to pray to God, Daniel prayed anyway. And when he, when he said yes to the Lord... And that resulted in him going into the lion's den. The blessing didn't come when he was taken out of the lion's den. The blessing came when he said yes to the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, they refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's uh, idol. And as a result of that, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. The blessing was not when they were taken out of the fiery furnace. The blessing was when they said, we're not going to bow down to the idol. You see how the blessing comes from the yes and God's in, cha in charge of the what. And that's how we have to operate. Folks, 
Blessing comes at the moment when we realize God has brought you and me to a place for this purpose and we refuse to turn away regardless of the cost. But there is a cost. And people will, and, and we will experience that cost. There's, there's no sugarcoating any of that. That cost will come. But God's in charge of all things. And the encouragement for us, I think, in all of this, in this, this whole series is to recognize that while there are times when we want to just focus on our circumstance, just want to focus on those things that our eyes see, there is one who is holding our hand that we can't see, but we're told is there. And when we put our hope, our trust, our faith in Him and move forward, that's when we, we realize the blessings that God's given us. I want us to uh, just take a moment and, and maybe absorb some of that that we've, we've just heard in the example of Esther. These are not... These are not um, These are not unreal circumstances that this person found herself in. There was real threat. There was real human drama. There was real danger in all of that. And yet she said yes. Because God had put her, she came to realize, God had put her in a place just like this for this very moment. I want to go back to something I said earlier. And I think that this is important for us. It's never wrong to do the right thing, regardless of the cost. That's what we should be known as God's people, those who are living in that trust. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we just thank you, Lord, for amazing examples that you've given us in Scripture of those people who lived ordinary lives or even in extraordinary positions, but were ordinary people that responded when the need was there. Father, I just pray that you will, you will help all of us as people as we experience difficulties, as we experience struggles, as we, as we move through life, that we will not let what our eyes see be the only reality that we understand, but that we understand, Lord, that you are there, you are with us. For us, Father, that all begins with a relationship with you. It comes to a time and a place of us saying, Lord, I'm a sinner and I can't help myself. I can't get myself out of this condition. Lord, I think about the publican and the Pharisee who were in the temple and the Pharisee being the one who began to brag about all the great things he did for you. And then I think about the publican, that tax collector that stood there who couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his chest and just simply said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is a prayer of salvation. Lord, there may be one who is here this morning that's never entered into that relationship, doesn't know what it means to be a child of God, doesn't know what it means to have this kind of faith because the Holy Spirit's not indwelling. But Father, if that one will say, Lord, I'm here, I'm a sinner, I know that Jesus died on the cross for me, is the only way to heaven and I give myself to you. That person will be renewed. Father, maybe it is for us as God, as your people that it's time for us to stop saying no and start saying yes. Stop weighing the, the cost and exercise faith. Lord, all of us need to be energized in that way. And I pray, Father, that your Spirit working 
on each and every heart in this place. I need that, Father. Help me to, to remain faithful and steadfast regardless of the cost that I, that I face and the risks that I face. May I be faithful. May we all be faithful. Father, we, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to have an invitation. If the deacons will come forward at this time, maybe, again, you, you could pray where you are. There's no need to come forward, but maybe you just need someone to pray with. And I'd encourage you. If that's you, that's where you are, 